Maybe you have them memorized. Um, we've been working on memorizing these for you that are visiting with us. Uh, we're doing a series from the shorter Westminster Shorter Catechism. And right now we're at the point where we're still able to review all the questions that we've done so far. So we will do that now. Uh, let's recite these together in unison, starting with question one. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So that tells us, of course, what we should be living for. The purpose that we have that is the highest and best purpose for us is to glorify God. Question two, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. So the Bible is the place that you go to find out how to fulfill your chief end, which is, again, to glorify God. He tells us in the scriptures how we are, what we are to believe and how we are to live. So that's the next question, question three. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now, questions 4 through 38 are about what we're to believe concerning God. And then questions 39 through 107 are how the duty that God requires of us. So the catechism is divided up that way. Question three is sort of sets a, uh, an outline of those two main uh, divisions in the catechism. Now let's review questions four through six, which have to do with the nature of God. The question, what we're to believe about God, you see, it begins with what do we believe about him uh, distinctively as our God. Question four says, what is God? God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Question five, are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. Question six, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now with question seven, which we looked at last week, we're introduced to the subject of the decrees of God. The decrees of God will really be the theme that we will be on all the way until we get to question 39, where we take up the duty that God requires of man. We'll be looking at how God has worked things out in his, with his decrees. So question seven introduces us to the decrees. Again, we did this last week. Question seven says, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So this tells us that God planned everything in eternity. 
before he made the world, we saw that nothing at all is excluded from God's plan, that he foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, everything that happens. This week, we take up question eight, which explains the two ways that God carries out his plan, the two ways that he brings it about or executes his plan. Question eight, how doth God execute his decrees? God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Now, this really is a very simple concept. God plans his work, question seven, and then he works out his plan, question eight. He planned his work before the foundation of the world from eternity, and then he began working out his plan. First, by creating the world, and then by preserving it, keeping it going, governing it, ruling over it, which he will continue to do forever. So he executes his decree in two ways. By creation, making all things according to his decrees, and by providence, preserving and governing all things according to his decrees. I mentioned to you last week that This is just what you do when you build a house. First, you draw the plans for your house, decide how you're going to build it. That's the decree. And then you execute the plan. That's the execution of the decree. And that involves two things. Getting the materials, which is sort of like creation, where you get the the raw materials. And then putting them all together according to the plan, which is providence. How you arrange everything. Today, I, I uh, do not so much need to explain this because it's quite easy to understand, but I want to help you meditate on what it is to have a God who works his plan in these two ways. So in other words, I don't, I've already explained to you what it means for God to carry out, his, to create everything and then carry out his plan with it. But in a very, it's a very rich and helpful thing for us to meditate And look at how God actually does this as we see it in Scripture. To help you do this, I've chosen Isaiah 40 for a Scripture reading. You'll see that it speaks about God as both creator and ruler of all. So those two things that we're talking about. And as you turn to it, let me explain the situation to you here. Isaiah 40 begins with the words, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. This is a low time in Israel. Many of the Israelites were not even truly believers. Because they had sinned against the Lord, he had recently announced to them that the house of David would be carried off to Babylon. That's actually what we looked at this morning when they were in Babylon, when we saw Daniel 9 and his prayer in that situation. But Isaiah had announced that this was something that was going to happen in the future. Up until this time, the Lord had brought enemies against them to chasten them for their sins. He was still doing that. But he had never let them conquer Jerusalem or overthrow David's house. But in Isaiah 39, Isaiah had just announced to Hezekiah, the Lord had announced to him through Isaiah, that the Babylonians would carry off his descendants. This was very disturbing 
a very disturbing announcement for the few people in Israel that loved God. They were hanging on to God's promises and to their hope in him. And they were looking to the promise that David would have an heir to sit on his throne forever. Promise of Christ, of course. And God had promised that to them very plainly in the time of David. But now they were hearing that David's sons would be carried off to Babylon. The throne of David was going to fall, as it were. It was very perplexing and disheartening. Was God done with them? Was his promise to them to fail? Perhaps you feel that way sometimes when you see how the kingdom of God is declining in Canada. There was a time when the laws of our people were based on the word of God much more than they are now. And when God was prayed to and sought by our leaders, especially in times of trouble like we have now. But increasingly, God is treated as irrelevant and his law is set aside. Increasingly, there is no fear of God in our land. This is disturbing to all who love God because God's kingdom is supposed to triumph. Somehow, some way, Christ is to reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. In these dreadful conditions that God, it is in these dreadful conditions that God says to his servant Isaiah and through Isaiah to us, comfort, yes, comfort my people. And then he speaks as chapter 40 unfolds of how the time will come when he will end his chastisement of them and will bring the gospel of forgiveness to them. Now, of course, we're talking about 700 some years before Christ came. So God himself will come and restore them. And of course, that was something that you very much want. When it seemed that they were completely ruined and beyond recovery, he would come and save them. This is really what the re- remainder of Isaiah is about from chapter 40 to the end of the book about God's promise of the coming salvation in Jesus Christ. But in chapter 40 itself, the Lord moves right into our subject. What he promised seemed impossible, but he assures them that it is not impossible because he is almighty God. The reason that they can be sure is because he is God who is carrying out his plan executing his decrees, to use what the catechism says, by the works of creation, well, that was already done, and providence. He tells them that he is the God, though, who made everything and the God who then carries out the plans that he has. He is the God of creation and he is the God of providence. And their seeing that is what comforts them in hard times knowing that God Almighty executes his decree exactly according to his plan. And our seeing that ought surely to comfort us in hard times. Seeing that God is the God of creation and providence who is working out his plan gives us assurance that he will accomplish all that he has promised to us in the end. I'm going to read Isaiah 40 to you, not all at once but a bit at a time, and we're going to look at what it says about God who executes his decrees by creation and providence. We're going to kind of let it unfold as we go along. So here is then the word of God. It's going to be broken up as I read it, but beginning with verse 1 
Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Do you see here what the comfort is from God for his people? After years of affliction at the hands of their enemies, which would reach a climax, which Isaiah has actually prophesied, it hasn't even happened yet, when the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem and carry off David's sons into captivity. But it would continue even after that with Israel never rising to what she had been in the time of David. Even in the day of Christ, the people of Israel did not have a son of David on the throne. They were under the dominion of the Roman Empire. So the church had its government, the ecclesiastical body, and then the civil magistrate was the Roman magistrate. God graciously calls for his people to be comforted despite this situation. And do you see the reason? Because there would be an end to her warfare. All of the affliction from her enemies that the Lord would bring upon her for her sins would come to an end. And why? Do you see why? It is because her iniquity would be pardoned as if she had paid double for all her sins, a complete payment of the debt. In fact, it would be that she had paid double for all her sins. All the punishment that needed to come would come. The full payment for her sins would be made. What a comforting thing that is. Justice would be satisfied and there would be no more penalty to pay for sin. The debt would be completely eradicated. Now, of course, we know how this was done. They did not pay their penalty for sin by the exile. As bad as that was, nor in the suffering under the hand of their enemies in the years that followed. A lot of sufferings under the Greeks and then the Romans. We know that it was not until God's blows fell upon David's son, Jesus Christ, that their iniquity was pardoned. It took the coming of Christ in the flesh and it took his death on the cross to pay for our sins. And it was then that we could say that our warfare was ended and our iniquity pardoned. But when Isaiah wrote these words, the people did not yet know just how that would come about. They just knew that God had promised that it would come and this promise carried the faithful ones through the exile that God would be faithful to send the son of David and that they would be redeemed. It sustained them and it kept them waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. As the passage continues in verse three, we see how the Lord calls for it to be announced that the Lord Yahweh himself will come to accomplish this. The people couldn't begin to imagine what this meant, but they are told that the Lord Yahweh himself will bring about this marvelous blessing of complete pardon. When the time comes, God said that he would appoint, he says here that he would appoint a voice in the wilderness to cry out and announce that he, Yahweh, the Lord, was coming to call on everyone to prepare 
for him to come. He tells everyone that they will see the glory of the Lord revealed when he comes. Flesh, human beings, all flesh will see it together. Flesh that cannot see God will somehow see the glory of God. This, of course, speaks of the voice, the voice referred to here, of John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way of the Lord Yahweh, Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isn't that fantastic? There's no mountain, there's no valley that will impede his way. He will come as on a smooth highway to bless his people with the forgiveness of sin. Not that it would be easy for him, but that nothing would stop him. This really will happen, God is telling them. Yahweh, the Son of God himself, will come, the Lord himself. Verse 5 makes it certain by saying, The mouth of the Lord, Yahweh, has spoken. He really will come and bring pardon to his people. As our text continues, the voice announcing this incredible news wants to know what it ought to say. Okay, John the Baptist was the voice that came, and he wanted to know, what, what does he say? Actually, it's a little difficult to tell for sure who's speaking to whom here. There's a great deal of excitement, you see. But the voice seems to be asking what it is to say at the beginning of verse 6 when it says, the voice said, cry out. And he also, the same, same voice, said, what, or he responded, what shall I say? And then the answer is given. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. That speaks of how fickle and how temporary human flesh is. We're just completely unreliable. And we quickly turn away from God. That's how Israel was throughout their history. The Lord kept on bringing them down. Just like grass in that region is brought down, the grass would grow up and be green, and then the season would change. And there there it dries up completely, so it's just brown, completely brown. And even just the dirt and just the seeds in the ground. And then it would grow back again when when the rainy season came. It grows up fresh and green, then it dries up by the hot sun. And uh, that, that is what had happened over the centuries as God would raise up Israel, bless them, then they would turn away from him, and he would dry them up, and then he would bring them back again. This is what they are like, up and down, unreliable. But there is something that is not at all like them, something that lasts forever that God has decreed, something that is never destroyed and something that never dries up. And that is the word of God. Look at verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. 
The word of God here is the promise that God has just spoken. The promise that the time would come when Israel's iniquity would be paid for in full. When they would have paid double for all their sins. When their iniquity would be pardoned. When the Lord Yahweh himself would be the one that would accomplish that payment. It was an amazing promise, but a certain promise. Because the mouth of the Lord had spoken it. And the word that he speaks does not fade away like we do. But it stands forever, utterly reliable. And now in verse 9, they're told how to receive comfort. Look at what it says. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. That's the way to receive comfort, you see. By beholding God. That's right. The Lord Yahweh who promises that he will come and that by him our iniquity will be pardoned. We are simply to behold him, to look at him, to see him, to see who he is, to see his glory, and to see his cross now that has been revealed. There is no comfort to be found in looking at ourselves. We just fade away like the withering grass. But true comfort is found in beholding our God who comes to us to save us. The Lord Yahweh who comes from heaven to pay for all of our sins. Verse 10 tells us to look at how he comes to take charge of the situation. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Comes with a strong hand, a strong arm. He comes to rule beautifully. He comes with a precious reward. He comes to do the work that only he and no one else can do. The work of the cross, the work of justification, the work of gathering into his kingdom of righteousness a people and fitting them for that kingdom by sanctification and all the more by atoning for their sins and then by sanctifying us that we might be his people. Verse 11 describes his gracious, gentle rule as King Jesus. It says, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. There is help for us here. Everything we need is from the Lord. Everything. And now the rest of the chapter goes on to encourage us that we can trust the Lord to do what he promises because he is the God who executes his decree and the works of creation and providence. He carries out his plan and no one can stop him. He made this plan here that we, we see revealed in Isaiah that we have now seen has been largely fulfilled. This is our subject this week, the decrees of God, that God carries out his plan, that he carries it out by creation and providence. This passage encourages us by reminding us who it is that has promised to do what seems impossible. It's none other than the one whose plan is being carried out. 
calls upon us to meditate on him as the God who carries out his plan without consulting us. Because we're not capable of advising him. How, how could God get help from us? Look, look first at his majesty in creating all things. Beginning with verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance. Just think of it. He is one, the one who measured out the ocean with his hands. And the heavens above us who weighed out the mountains. How big each one was to be. He portioned everything out with just the right mixture of land and water with just the right distance of the sun from the earth in order that we might live? Did any of us give God advice when he did this? Verse 13 says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or who, has, or who as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding. He did it completely without our help. We are so impressed with ourselves when we measure out what he has created. And we can't even do that with a lot of his creation. But we could never have designed it all. We could never have called it into being. We would not know where to begin. There was nothing. There was no such thing as water. No such thing as land. No such thing as fish or sun and moon. All things that we depend on to live. We could not even begin to dream it up. To dream up what was entirely not. What was not in existence. We consider ourselves to be creative when we rearrange what God has already made. But where were we when God came up with it all? When he created it just as it is. We did not stand by God and direct him. We couldn't even dream of doing such a thing. When the nations that God made rise to great power, they they can become so proud and so self-sufficient that they forget God. They lose sight of the fact that they did not help God to create all things that they constantly depend on. That they're living in his world, using his things. So in verse 15 we're reminded at how small and how weak the nations are compared to God who's carrying out his plan. Behold, it says, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as small as the dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. Like dust on the scales. Nations are like that. They're too small to even matter. When you weigh yourself on your bathroom scales, you don't say, oh, I didn't get a right reading because I forgot to dust off the scales. There's some dust on my bathroom scales. I better better dust it off and then weigh again. You know, that that would be ridiculous. Even, Even if they hadn't been dusted for five years, it's not going to affect it. The great nations of the world before God are that small compared to God. And we can be impressed with our sacrifices to God, what we did for God. You know, we made an offering for our sins. But in verse 16, we're reminded that even if all of Lebanon 
was taken, it would not be sufficient to make a burnt offering to God. Lebanon was renowned for its huge cedar forests. And even if you burn that whole forest on an, as a great altar and all the beasts in that, in that forest were offered up to God, it would be nothing compared to God. Look at verse 16. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. When we consider what the nations are compared to God, we can, even, we can only marvel that he should take notice of us at all. But you see, he is telling us in this chapter that he is taking much notice of us. He is actually going to himself. He himself is going to come and all flesh will see his glory when he does. And that when he comes, he will save us. That our iniquity will be pardoned and our sins will be paid for. Double payment will be made for all of our sin, a complete payment. We can't begin to do this. But God who made, the all, who made all things, he is the one who does this. How foolish we are when we try to represent what we think God is like instead of beholding him as he's revealed in his word. It's so foolish. He's revealed in Christ and all flesh has seen his glory. And we try to come up with what we think he is without looking at what he has revealed. It's, it's very foolish. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken me? To, I'm sorry. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver, with silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. So the rich guy uses gold and silver and the poor guy uses a piece of wood and they make their God. How foolish we look when we try to represent God by these things. But men will put on great airs of being brilliant as they postulate God. They postulate him into what they want him to be. Coming up with their foolish, inadequate ideas that can impress flesh, but are so far off the mark when it comes to actually describing the true God. But now our passage speaks about God's providence. Again, let's clarify here the, the difference between creation and providence. We'll be looking at this more in the future, but creation was what God did in six days, making all things of nothing. Providence is what he does with what he has made in outworking of history. So you see, creation was finished in six days. It is not an ongoing thing. God made things so that they can reproduce, and he made things so that chemicals could react with each other and produce different sorts of substances and combinations of things. But he is not in the business of creating anything new that he never created before. It is not as if there were no trees on the earth for, for hundreds of years, and then one day he decided, I think I'm going to create some trees. No, he did it all in the initial period of six days. didn't say, I have a new idea, I'm going to make something new, and then he, he makes a tree or something that hadn't done. He created everything 
and then he was done. But providence, you see, that's an ongoing thing. It's what God does with his creation. He raises up nations. He causes us to conceive children and bring them forth. And he causes trees to grow and to produce seeds that bear more trees. And he causes things like earthquakes and wars that can destroy things. And then uh, refreshing rain and water to the ground can make things grow. And he also brings his revelation to us and carries out his saving plan to gather his elect into his kingdom. This is all his providence, which he brings about by his mighty hand. And now, with verse 21, Isaiah begins to speak of God's providence by asking us a series of questions. Questions to chide us, really, for being foolish to think that we could dream up how God should be represented when it is just not something that we're capable of doing. You don't make up what God... You hear people do that. They say, well, you know, I don't think God is like that. So? <laughs> what does it matter what you think? Why do you think God is not like... We, you don't know what God is. God must reveal himself to you. So, you see, the, let's, let's look at verse 21. God says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. You see, this is his providence, outworking of his providence. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, blows on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Do you see that God is the one who brings down princes and raises them up, that uh, those who should have known him all along, it, it, should, it should be, this is something we should have known all along, that God ra- raises up princes and brings them down. It should be obvious to us, that's what Isaiah is saying here. He carries out his plans in his works of providence. No king rules without God ordering it. And no nation falls unless God brings the nation down. When you fly on a plane, it is God who is ultimately responsible for gently setting that plane down on the runway or not. So we see then his actions when we look at the Situation we have now with the coronavirus. This is something that God has brought according to his plan in the outworking of his providence. And now in verses verse 25 and 26 sums up with God's absolute control as creator and as the God of all providence. He says, to whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Do you see here? He does what he pleases. We are in his hands. We are sustained because he sustains us. But do not forget why we're told all of this here. 
It is to comfort us when God has been chastening us. Remember how it started? To comfort us that if he has promised us something, it will not fail. Whatever troubles we may have, whatever things may look like, they're standing in the way of the fulfillment of God's promise. No matter how impossible it may look at the time, it will be done. The Lord has authority to do whatever he pleases. And the promise from Isaiah's day was that the Lord himself was coming to us himself to save us. How could he do that? We know now. This is what God who created and who now governs all things is committed. He's committed to our blessing and that it will not be beyond him to bring the blessing about. He is in charge and he can do whatever he wants. He can save us. And so our passage goes on to challenge his people as to their doubts. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God. Why do you say that? It's not. They were saying that God was not carrying out justice in the earth. They were acting as if he did not care about them. As if he did not see what was happening to them. Was ignoring their claims of his care of them. They were completely wrong to think that way. And so are we when we think that God has forgotten us. Or abandon us as his people. Of course he hasn't. We need to remember that. We may face a lot more trouble in this present time. God has not forgotten us. He's carrying out exactly his plan. He's doing exactly what he has purposed from before the foundation of the world. And he's doing it for the good of the church. And for his glory. To bring about his own purpose. And so the challenge, the challenge comes again with verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What encouraging words. The God who put what is in the earth in the earth. And the God who rules the nations and caused them to rise and fall at his appointed times. He has said that he will raise up his people, that he will bless his people, that he will pardon his people, that he will lift us up out of the miry clay and from the dust heap. If he said it, he will do it, no matter how impossible it seems, no matter how low you may have been brought. Now we see the monumental work he has brought about in the earth for our salvation. We have the privilege of being on the other side of what in Isaiah's day seemed like impossible promises. They were in exile. They were or going to exile, going under the, the, the rule of Babylon. And somehow, double for all their sins, Jesus Christ 
has come and he has paid double for all our sins. Christ has come and he has poured out his spirit on his church that all the elect might believe and come to him. And he has justified us, sanctified us. And now the future, he will surely glorify us. He will complete his work and bring us to our final destiny so that we mount up with wings like eagles, so that we run and are not weary, so that we walk and are not faint. It is his decree to do so, and it cannot fail because it is God's decree who does whatever he has decreed, whatever he is is pleased to do. How we ought to trust God who is carrying out his plans in the earth before our eyes. He has shown us, and this, this whole section, you might do well to read from Isaiah 40 to the end. He talks much about how he's going to use different kings and the different things he's going to do to bring about his purposes. He's over it all. If he has made promises to us, he will have no problem in fulfilling them. He does whatever he pleases in heaven and earth, and nobody can stop him. Give him praise for his power and wisdom, for his justice and kindness. Give thanks to him for all that he has done already in creation and providence and in Christ. Fully trust him for his promised salvation. How can I say to you how foolish it would be to have a God who has planned everything and who extends to us the free offer of the gospel to look to him and participate to receive this salvation that he promises that he himself has brought into the world by Jesus Christ. He holds that offer and that promise. He who has planned everything and has control of it. How foolish to resist him and to reject that offer of the gospel. No, let us come gladly and put ourselves in the hands of our Lord who promises to save us. Look to me all the ends of the earth, he says, and be saved. Fully trust him. His promises cannot fail. Please stand and let's pray to our God. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the true and living God. There is no other. You are the one whose plan is being carried out in the world. You're the one who made the world in the first place. Father, we praise you we glorify your name. We praise you that you're, you've carried out your plan already creating the world. And you've carried out much of your plan in your providence of governing and ruling. And yet there's so much more to come. We praise you, Lord, that our future is in your hands. And we pray, Lord, that we would not be so foolish as to try to war against you when you have graciously called us to come and to receive the salvation and the blessing that is in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would bow humbly before you. And Lord, even in our difficult times, we're we're in a difficult time now in our world. And we pray, Lord, that we would trust you and we would not suppose that things have in any way spun out of control. This is really a very little thing compared to even what God's people suffered when they went to Babylon or many of their other trials. It's, It's just a little 
little tiny thing compared. And we pray, Lord, that, that you would help us, Lord, that we would not, that we would not go into despair and panic and, and fear, but Lord, Lord that we would, we would trust you and we would know that you're doing exactly what you purposed, that you have a plan and you're, you're using that plan to bring about something impossible, the salvation of sinners. What is impossible with us is possible with you. Father, your ways are marvelous. They're far above our ways. And we praise you. We honor you. We glorify your name. Oh, Lord, continue to reign. We pray that you would show forth your majesty to us, that we would be able to see the security of how that even your promises, Lord, that, that you know, we're like the grass that withers and it's quickly gone. The wind blows and it's gone. But Lord, your word endures forever. Here we have an anchor. Here we have a place where we can know that we have a destiny, an eternal inheritance with Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, bring us comfort from knowing that you are at the helm, that you will do all that you have spoken. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.